0: Welcome to Tanakhstudy.com. This is Naima Novetsky, and this will be our second class on Parashat Bechokotai. We looked at the first part of Chapter 26 in our last class, delving into the unit of blessings, questioning both why they seem to be fewer in number than the curses, and also why they do not include mention of the spiritual rewards of the next world. Today we'll move into the section of curses, which as we pointed out last class, extend from verses 14 through 41 or so and can be divided into five main sections. We'll explore the first four of these mini-units and then turn to delve into a question that emerges from the refrain that repeats throughout this section of the chapter. The refrain reads, The verse implies that if we continue sinning and walk contrary to God, He will punish us sevenfold for our sins. This raises the obvious, but very troubling question of why God would punish the nation more than deserved. It is this question that will be the focus of much of our class today. But let's first look at the verses inside. The unit opens with an introduction to the curses. Verse 14, The lo tishm'uli, Asu ta'asu et But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments. Verse 15, V'im d'chokotai asu." and if you shall reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant. The Sifra, the Midrash Halacha, and our verses suggest that this introduction includes seven different levels of rebellion against God. The words, if you don't listen to me, refer to not listening to the words of the sages which explain the Torah. The first level of rebellion is refusing to heed Torah Shabba'apah, the oral law, and thinking that Torah Shabba'tav, the written law, suffices. One cannot properly observe Torah Shabba'tav without the accompanying oral law. These words represent the second level of rebellion. One who does not learn the oral law will quickly come to this second level of non observance, not keeping the commandments. For how can you observe what you do not know? Afterwards comes the imbichokotai timasu. Not only do the people not observe mitzvot on their own, but they mock those who do. Not only that, at Mishbathai Tigam nafshachem, they further mock Mishpatai, my ways of justice, the path by which Halacha is determined. They degrade the Halachic system. The vilti assault, at the next level, they not only mock, but try to prevent the doing of mitzvot by others. The vilty asot at Sixth, they cast doubt on the divinity of the mitzvot, questioning or not believing that they originated from God. And finally, b'iti, they denied the existence of God altogether and in so doing, totally nullify the covenant made with God at Sinai. Whether or not one totally agrees with the Sifra's breakdown, the verse clearly shows a progression in disobedience from non-observance to mockery and finally to annulment of the covenant. Verse 16 starts the actual curses. As we said, these are broken up into units, each divided by by variations of the chapter's refrain. Rav Davidsfi Hoffman suggests that the first four of these units, those which we'll be looking at today, might match the four categories of calamity mentioned by the Prophet Yechazgal in Sefer Yechazgal chapter 14. Sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague. These, Rav Hoffman suggests, will come measure for measure. Foreign enemies attack B'nai Israel when they have proven themselves no, no better than surrounding cultures. The land is devastated by famine when we desecrate it. Animals attack when our behavior shows that we have forgotten the fact that we were created in the image of God and begin to behave like beasts rather than men. And finally, plague comes bearing death to those who have not filled their lives with good. Our verses open with the equivalent of plague. A list of diseases that will come to the people, followed by devastation of the land due to enemy attack. Verse sixteen, Af sezot Lachem, Alechem I will also do this to you. I will appoint terror over you. Et Mechalot Nafesh. Consumption and fever that shall consume the eyes and make the soul to pine away. Uzratem larik Zarachem Vaachaluhu and you will sow your seed in vain, for your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you, and you will be struck before your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one pursues you. The long list of maladies reminds us of Hashem's promise to the nation back in Sefer Shmot, that if they keep Hashem's mitzvot, Every disease which comes upon the Egyptians won't come upon them. Apparently, though, if we don't keep these mitzvot, every disease will instead fall upon us. Verse 18 is the first occurrence of our refrain. V'im'ad'ila lo tishm'uli, sheva If you, in spite of these things, will not listen to me, then I will chastise you seven times more for your sins. Verses 19 and 20 then move into the second of the four categories of punishment. Famine. Verse nineteen. Veshavarti et goon utchem vnatati et shmichem kabarzel vetartchem kanehusha. I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your sky like iron, and your soil and your soil like brass. V'tam lariq kochachem v'lo titein artchem et yivula ve'eit haaret puryo. And your strength will be spent in vain, for your lands won't yield its increase, neither will the trees of the land yield their fruit. This curse is worded to some extent as a measure for measure punishment. Hashem will break the strength of the people's pride by turning the heavens and earth into impenetrable objects. The sky will be like iron and the land like bronze, neither yielding to give forth rain or fruit. Though we pride ourselves on our strength, all that strength will be for naught as the land refuses to give forth produce. Verse 21 reiterates the refrain with a slight variation or perhaps a progression. If you walk contrary to me and don't listen to me, then I will bring seven times more plagues on you according to your sins. Now Hashem tells us that if we not only continue not to listen, but in addition to not listening, we walk with Hashem, a word whose meaning is not clear, but is translated by many as if you walk contrary with me, then He will continue to smite us sevenfold. Verse 22 thus moves into the third category of calamities, wild animals. Animals will come and kill not only the children, robbing mothers of their kids, but attack their domesticated animals as well, and finally attack the adults too, diminishing them in number until the roads become desolate. Verses 23 and 24 once again return to our frame, once again worded slightly differently and betraying a progression, this time not in the sin, but in the punishment. If we don't learn our lesson, but we continue to walk bekeri, continue to walk contrary to God, not only will Hashem punish us sevenfold, but he will act towards us as we acted towards him, walking with us contrary. This brings us to the last of the four categories of calamity, sword. Verse 25. I will bring a sword upon you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant and you will be gathered together within your cities. dever vinitatem and I will send the pestilence among you, and you will be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Verse 26. When I break your staff of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven, and they shall deliver your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. The people will be plagued by enemies, and as is often the case, other factors will aid their defeat. Plague and famine will accompany war. There will also be so little bread that ten women could share one oven, and they will measure our portions to each, eating and never being satiated. The next two verses introduce the final and harshest set of curses, repeating our refrain one last time, once again in a slightly harsher formulation. <inaudible> This time Hashem tells us not only that if we walk with Hashem that if we walk contrary to God He will do the same back but I will walk contrary to you in wrath. And the curses of the next verse live up to this curse beginning with a description of women eating their children. We'll look at this, at this last section of curses next class and instead now turn our attention to the theological questions raised by our unit. Justice would seem to dictate that people never get punished more than they deserve. And yet, as we've seen, our chapter repeats four times, afani sheva achatotichem, telling us that if the shall continue to sin, they will get a sevenfold punishment, i.e. seven times what their crimes warrant. How are we to understand this? Where is the justice in such disproportionate punishment? This is actually not the only case in Tanakh where such disproportionate punishment is implied. In Yeshayahu 40, the haftarah for Shabbat Nachamu, read after Tisha B'av, we read, Nachamu, Nachamu, ami yomar elokim, dabru alei yushalaim, v'kuru elah ki malatzva, ki nitzavonah, ki vakhami ad hashem keflaim The prophet comforts the nation telling them that their punishment is finally complete, for they already paid double for their iniquities. Here too we ask, why would Hashem have made Israel suffer disproportionately for her sins? Why should she pay double for her iniquities? Is that not unjust? Our question is really just a variation of another age-old theological question. Why do bad things happen to good people? While people normally discuss the issue of tzaddik Veralo in reference to individual suffering, our verses speak about the punishment of the collective of Israel. It's not clear how significant the distinction is. Does it matter whether it's one person or the whole nation which is suffering unduly? Both questions are intricately connected to several other philosophical issues, which depending on how you, and how you understand them, might lead one to different possible solutions to our question. First, what is the nature of divine providence? To what extent is the world run by natural order? And to what extent via divine providence? Is it possible that sometimes we receive punishment not because of active divine intervention, but because of what we might call chance? Second, how does retribution in this world connect to retribution in olam haba, in the next world? Is the next world meant only for the soul or for the body as well? Do individuals get their just desserts in this world or only in the world to come? Is there a difference between national and individual recompense? With these questions in mind, let's survey some of the approaches to our verses. The majority of names suggest that it is not possible that Hashem would be unjust and punish more than deserved. As such, they suggest that the verses only make it seem that Hashem is excessive in His punishment. In reality, though, the people have either sinned more or are punished less severely than implied by the verses. So that despite the initial impression given by the text, Hashem never really punishes more than called for. So how does this idea play out? The Sifra, Rashi, and many others claim that the sevenfold punishment is measure-for-measure punishment for the nation's sevenfold transgression. As we saw, the Midrash attempted to read into verses 14 and 15, the opening verses of our unit, seven sins. If so, there is a one-to-one correspondence between sin and punishment, not seven-to-one. This approach notes that one of the variations of the refrain actually states the asaftiya decha makashava ki I will bring seven times more plays on you according to your sins. Tip for tat, measure for measure. On one hand, this position is conceptually sound. If one commits seven sins, then yes, seven punishments is appropriate. But from a textual perspective, it is somewhat lacking. It is not at all clear that if you were not motivated to find seven sins in those two verses, that one would really have read that number into the psukim. As such, Rabag justifies the excessive punishment in a different way, also suggesting that the sin is more egregious than originally appears, but for different reasons. According to him, the fact that the verses are speaking of a repeat offender explains the punishment. Someone who is mired in sin, for whom it has been part of their being and identity. He requires greater punishment to help him out of his morass than other sinners do. If someone is already addicted to his crimes, where they become so much a part of him that what was prohibited has become permitted, where they hardly even notice that they are sinning, a small punishment won't suffice to break the cycle and that habit. This approach assumes that the world is run by divine providence, and that Hashem watches over the nation to punish it exactly as it deserves, and no more. The existence of a world to come does not preclude justice in this world, and so Hashem never punishes Israel unduly. As our verses speak on the national level, though, it's not clear whether this is true for the individual level as well. A second position is basically the flip side of this one. Instead of suggesting that the nation's crimes must have been more numerous than originally assumed, It suggests that perhaps the punishment is not as harsh as it would appear at first glance. Commentators develop the idea in varying ways. According to some, a reading of the text is too literal. Ibn Ezra points out that seven is not meant to be taken at face value to connote a sevenfold punishment. In Tanakh, the number seven is often used simply to express a large quantity. As such, Hashem is merely relaying that the people will deserve a large punishment not that they will get seven times their due. According to Akedah Yitrak and a in contrast, the punishment mentioned is relative. Hashem tells the nation that if they do not improve their ways, they will be punished seven times the amount that they had been punished previously, but that this will still be in proportion to their crime. A third variation of this approach suggests that Hashem deliberately exaggerated when speaking of the people's punishment, so as to most effectively frighten them into obedience. If you tell someone that they are to be punished sevenfold, that is a much bigger deterrent than if you merely say that you will get what you deserve. However, one might question whether Hashem's use of an empty threat would be an effective tool to deter disobedience. If one exaggerates in describing a prospective punishment and does not carry it through, does it not lead the sinner to assume that other warnings of punishment can similarly be ignored? The variations of this approach are all assuming that Tanakh often expresses itself in the way that people do. As such, certain verses can best be understood in light of the norms of people's behavior and speech, recognizing that they use hyperbole, round numbers to express magnitude, and the like. This position, like the first approach to our question, assumes that at least on the level of the collective, justice is meted out in this world and not just the next and that Hashem would never let the collective of Israel suffer if not warranted. Aspects of both of the approaches that we've just developed have been used to also address the larger question of unjust suffering of the individual righteous, the question of tzaddik Viralo. It's possible that as in this case of disproportionate punishment, the the phenomenon does not really exist and is just a misperception. One who appears righteous to the outsider may not really be as upright as he seems. His sins might be more numerous or severe than first thought, justifying his suffering. And conversely, the person who appears to be wicked might be more righteous than assumed. As people are not privy to all the actions of others, they are not always aware of their faults or merits. Rabag adds that people do not always take an individual's potential into account when evaluating their deeds. If a person is righteous but had the potential to do significantly more than he did, he's not as deserving as he seems. Similarly. If a wicked person is born without a certain capacity for good, he should not be held culpable when he does not have many good deeds to his name. It is not only a perceptions of people's character which might be misperceived, but our perceptions of justice can be skewed as well. What appears to be a reward or a punishment might actually be the opposite. As such, what is construed as unjust retribution might really not be so. For example, the Rambam suggests that people assume that happiness comes from physical good, such as health, children, and wealth, when in reality, these pale in comparison to the ultimate good, knowledge of God. Thus, an outsider might consider a tzaddik who lives in poverty to be suffering, when in fact, that individual is on such a high spiritual level that they simply do not regard physical affliction as suffering at all. Most other commentators suggest instead the compensation is often misconstrued since people tend to see only part of a person's retribution. The illusion of injustice might be caused by the fact that God does not always give recompense immediately after one commits a sin or does a good deed, making it difficult to see how every action is paid for measure for measure. Shadda points out, though, that if one were to look at an individual's retribution over the span of a lifetime, one would see that it matches his deeds. Alternatively, A person might receive what appears to be a reprieve and punishment, or even a reward, but in reality, the point is to ultimately cause them more damage later. The inverse is also true. The righteous sometimes suffer slight hardships only so as to prevent bigger catastrophes. I think that these points are all valid, but are true only to a certain extent. Sure, there are many who appear happy to an outsider, but are really suffering inside, or others who might look miserable, but really are not, and I'm sure certain people do their good deeds in private so that outsiders are unaware of them, or that a seemingly righteous person can have a dark side which we don't know about. But nonetheless, there are certain hardships which are very difficult to understand as being blessings in disguise. What hidden hidden good did a child who suffered and died at the hands of the Nazis receive? What evil could such a child possibly have done to deserve such a punishment? So moving to a third approach to both the question of disproportionate punishment in our verses and perhaps the larger question of theodicy in general. The Kliyakar suggests that actually, our verses should be understood according to their simple sense, that yes, actually, sometimes people are punished more than they deserve. In our verses, Hashem threatens the people that if they continue to sin, they will pay sevenfold for their crimes, for Hashem will leave them to chance which has no mercy and no way of fitting one's punishments to one's sins. The Kliakar's approach is based, his, is based on his understanding of the phrases Vahalachtem imi b'keri and v'halakhti afani imachem b'keri. Some other parshanim have understood the word keri to mean "kasha," to mean hard, referring to one who is so full of self-confidence or obstinacy that he fears nothing and no one. He relates to Hashem without fear of punishment or of consequences. The Kliyakar, in contrast, like many who came before him, suggests that the word keri is related to the word "mikra," chance. Hashem tells the nation that if they walk with him in chance, if they don't recognize Hashem's providence, but rather assume that what occurs to them is the product of chance, then Hashem will punish them accordingly and deliberately leave their fate to such chance, measure for measure. So according to the Kliyakar, even though normally the world is run, is run by a divine providence, every so often, as a punishment for our sin and our lack of recognition of divine providence, Hashem hides His face and takes away that divine providence, allowing nature to take its course. And when it does, that might very well mean that the people will be punished more than they deserve, because nature is indiscriminate and when unleashed is often difficult to rein in. Similarly, if enemies attack and Israel is not deserving of divine protection, they have no reason to strike in accord with our sins. They strike in accord with their ability. And if that happens to be more than we deserve, there's no one to stop them. A variation of this approach has been used to explain this phenomenon of Sadik Viralo as well. According to many Jewish thinkers, even though individual providence exists, Hashem normally runs the world with only collective providence, intervening on the collective level, but only rarely on the individual level. On the individual level, the world is generally run by a natural law. And so in this world, individuals might be harmed by, or benefit from, the vicissitudes of nature unrelated to their particular merits. Only a person who is so righteous that he merits divine intervention to overturn nature will be protected from undeserved chance disasters. A a corollary of the above is the idea that since in this world, general providence takes precedence, the world is judged according to the majority. And so often individuals might share the fate of the many, even if undeserving. If the majority of the nation deserves punishment, the few righteous individuals within will suffer as well. And if the community deserves blessing, the few wicked will reap the reward with them. As such, we see that sometimes the righteous suffer undeservedly and sometimes the wicked prosper. Why, though, is this just? According to this approach, at least on the individual level, it is only in the world to come that Hashem gives everyone their appropriate due. In fact, the existence of suffering in this world and the assumption of Hashem's justice is one of the strongest proofs that a world to come exists. Moreover, since the world to come is the ultimate goal, it is not problematic that justice is deferred until then. So to summarize the approaches to our question, commentators disagree regarding whether Hashem ever punishes the nation more than it deserves. According to some, the verses only make it seem that Hashem is excessive in His punishment. In reality, though, the people have either sinned more or are punished less severely than implied by the verses. Hashem, though, always gives retribution in accordance with a person's deeds. Others suggest that sometimes disproportionate punishment is part of Hashem's mode of justice. Due to the people's lack of belief in divine providence, Hashem removes his providence, making an, making an active decision to hide his face and let the world be run by a natural means, which might very well result in disproportionate retribution. In our next class, we'll move into the next set of curses, those which focus on the exile of the nation and how this relates to the nation's laxity in keeping the mitzvot of Shemitah and Yovel.